Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as, and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, and all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. They have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not His children because of their defects, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. Father, what a beautiful song. As we enter into the song of Moses to consider the words that you had him pen so long ago. I pray that we today would find application and would be blessed in these words. I pray that we would have understanding and seek to know how it is that you're working in our lives that we might one day see you and know you intimately, Father. Bless this study, Father. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be a pop quiz. This morning good way to start out on a cold morning. I want to see if you can tell me the rest, the, the next line that follows this line in these popular songs. <clears throat> oh, beautiful for spacious skies. Okay, that's pretty easy. The hills are alive. See, that, that's interesting to me because if someone said the hills were alive before the sound of music came out, people would have run for the hills or away from the hills. It's a little frightening thought, the hills are alive. How about this one? What would you think if I sang out of tune? <laughs> Pretty good. Now everybody's gone surfing. I love the anticipation. I'm going to get the next one. I know I'm going to get the next one. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> okay. Maybe you missed that one. How about this one? Somewhere over the rainbow. Way up high. That was the number one song for the last 100 years, by the way. Over the rainbow. Dashing through the snow. Good. Songs are our most powerful means of communication. What's amazing is the way we remember songs. Even obscure songs, songs that you don't sing very often, they get in our heads, they stick, they stay with us. They have a way of getting embedded in our minds, especially early in the morning when you hear a certain stupid song and it stays with you all day long. Something like Jimmy Crack Corn and I Don't Care. Now, if that gets in my head, get out of my way because that's all I'm thinking. Jimmy Crack Corn. And I'm sick of caring. It just, you know, they stick in our heads. But songs draw on deep levels of emotion and thought. 
They get in deep. Psalm 33 verse 1 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. That's not the person who lies. That's the lyre, the instrument. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Paul tells us something important about the handling of this powerful medium of song. He says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul tells us not only are songs for the purpose of encouraging and uplifting each other, not only do we sing to praise and honor God, we also sing to teach. We sing to admonish. We sing that we might learn things. Songs are powerful teachers. This weekend down in Seattle at Overlake Christian Church, they're having the Christian Musician Summit. And I was down there on Thursday for what they called Songwriters Boot Camp. And it was very interesting. They gathered about 120 people. We signed up for this thing. Songwriters wanted to know more about the craft and, and understand more about the industry. And we went through all these different sessions. And we listened to them. We talked to these different uh, session leaders. And those of you who listened to Christian music back in the 80s, you'll recognize this guy. I had a song, a song critiquing session where they actually took one of my songs along with some others and they critiqued them. And the guy who was critiquing my song was a guy by the name of Charlie Peacock. You've heard of him. That was a little intimidating to have Charlie Peacock critiquing my song. But he said something and it stuck. It was the first thing out of his mouth in the morning in the first session. He said, the church today gets most of its theology from the songs we sing. Absolutely true. Now, that's a good thing if the theology in the songs we sing is good. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of bad theology in the songs out there. And you might want to quiz yourself sometime on the things that you believe, the things that you think you know. The reason why we keep going back to Scripture at the bridge is because an awful lot of what we've been trained to believe did not come from the Bible, but it came from someone's interpretation of the Bible or someone's songs about the Lord. And those songs might be completely off. I'm very careful when we worship here in the, in the lyrics and the songs that we sing and the songs we choose to sing in worship to check them for biblical accuracy, to make sure they're theologically correct and not even subtly off-center. Because there are a lot of old hymns that actually are speaking more doctrine of particular denominations than they are speaking the truth of the Word. Let me see if you know the next line of these worship songs. Pop quiz number two. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Good theology. Jesus loves me, this I know. Again, good theology. You came from heaven to earth. To show the way. (laughs) A little less certain there. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea. Well, that's a tough one. Creation's revealing His majesty. That's indescribable by Chris Tomlin. A little more recent. How about this one? Amazing love. How can it be? (laughs) That you, my king, should die for me. All good theology, good teaching. And as we sing and we worship in song, we are also learning. We're also understanding the Lord better. Songs get in our heads. And so God told Moses, I want you to sing. I want you to teach the children a song. Look back at Deuteronomy 31 verse 19. 
Moses has finished a long sermon of the book of Deuteronomy that we've been studying for all these weeks. And he comes to verse 19, chapter 31, and, sa- and the Lord says, Now therefore, write this song for yourselves. And teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and which they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about, the Lord says, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. The song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, is that song. These are the lyrics before us of the song that Moses wrote. After he finished his sermon, he sat down, immediately wrote the song that God told him to write, and taught it to the sons of Israel as a witness. Why did he do it? Look at verse 2 of chapter 32. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. Let my teaching be known. Let my teaching get into them. For God understands something. We'll forget a sermon just like that. What did I preach about last week? (laughs) Alright. Who said that? Way to go, David. Yeah, we did talk about the Word. But can you give me the specific, how simple it was? Alright, wow, you guys have good memory. Or am I? I'm a good pastor. One of the two. What did I talk about two weeks ago? How about three weeks ago? I didn't talk about tithing recently. Okay, we've got some basic concepts, but you know it's amazing. Songs, as we already have seen, dashing through the snow, you all jump out, and a one-horse open sleigh, we know them. They're in us. They're in our heads. Sometimes the teaching, we have to really stretch and go, what, what was that? Or we have to look back in our notes and see what was written down. It doesn't stick quite as well. I'm sure Moses was looking out, I told you this a couple weeks back, looking out at the children of Israel while he was speaking, and some of them had to be going, you know, or... So he teaches a song, the song of Moses. We're going to look at that. Today, Wednesday night, we're going to go through the whole chapter. Next week, we're probably going to deal with a little bit more of this song to understand the Lord, to see what He has to say. It's interesting, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 15 tells us the following. It says, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And some believe that that song of Moses listed in Revelation 15 actually goes back to the first song recorded in the scriptures which would be Exodus 15 Exodus 15 where the children of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea had seen the mighty acts of God as he led them through on dry ground and on the other side of the sea they began to break forth in song and Moses sang a great song at that point I tend to think after looking at these things and studying it, that the song of Moses referred to in Revelation is this song. It's Deuteronomy 32. 
Because this song speaks of Israel. It speaks of God's righteousness to Israel. It speaks of their faithlessness and God's faithfulness. And in Revelation 15, at that point in the world's history, history to come, Israel will be turning to the Lord once again and praising Him. And I think it's going to be this song they're going to remember. This is the song that they will sing. In any case, whether it's this song or Exodus 15, I think it would be good for us to learn the song to get a good jump start on the lyrics ahead of time. So when the song's sung, we already know it. We can help you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters who are trying to remember the lyrics. So as we come to the end of Deuteronomy, let's take a little bit of time and, and look at this song. Look at verse 7. Remember the days of old, Moses sings. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you. Your elders... And they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Interesting couple of verses there. Remember the days of old, He says. Ask your father, He'll inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. And there's something we have lost in our culture, and that's the value of learning from our elders. We're not talking about elders in the church. I'm talking about people who have wisdom and experience, who have some life lived who have been around a while. Senior citizens who in our country are often second class are not second class to the Lord because they're the ones who have the memory. They're the ones who have the longevity. And Moses sings, ask them, go to them, see what they have to say. Understand a little bit of what they've learned. Let them inform you as to what the Lord has done. He says in verse 8 that the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and that's exactly what God did. He gave man an inheritance over all the planet But this is interesting. For all of the inheritance of humanity, God had a specific inheritance for Himself. One thing that He kept for Himself. Look at verse 9. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Israel, the Jewish people, are the Lord's special inheritance in the earth. They are the people He chose for Himself. He set aside for Himself. And Moses sings these words. They are His inheritance, His special portion. Why do we talk about Israel so much at the bridge? Why is it such a focus? Why are people going to be traveling there in the midst of all the upheaval in our world? Why Israel? Gang, if for no other reason, it's because the Lord claimed the people of Israel as His inheritance. And if you love the Lord, you're going to love the things the Lord loves. And the Lord loves Israel. God loves the Jewish people. They are His inheritance. His special portion. You remember, Isaac, born of Abraham, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob had twelve sons. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, meaning Prince of God. Jacob, whose name you may recall means heel catcher. He's the supplanter. God changed Jacob in his life, turned him into Israel, Prince of God. And the twelve sons he had became twelve tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Yosef, and Benjamin. Because there's no J in the Hebrew language, it would have more of a Y sound. Israel is God's portion among all the people of the world. So what? So great. Good for the Lord. I'm happy for Him. What does that have to do with me? Says the selfish person. Why does it matter? Because God's choice of this people provided for His choice of you. 
God chose the Jewish people and through that choice chose you as well. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish people, but all families. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. The father of, of, of many. But I'm also going to bless the entire world through you and through your offspring. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance, listen, in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I pray that you'll know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Suddenly Paul makes a stunning claim. Not only is Israel the inheritance of God, but the saints are also His inheritance. Those who believe become God's portion in this world. His inheritance. Those He desires. Here is the hope, gang, of God's calling. You're His inheritance. You're His prize. You're His treasure. You're His great desire. As Jim talked about in communion this morning, we're created for a relationship, but not just with each other. We are created for a relationship with God. That's His call. That's His choice. That's His desire. And you might say, well, what kind of inheritance am I? (laughs) I think about that from time to time. You've got to be kidding. I wouldn't choose me, but God chose me. And chose to prove his love for me. Watch this. Note this here. In these verses, the next couple of verses, three things or or four things that God did relating to Israel, but I also believe relating to you and I as well. Verse 10 says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. Number one, he found his people. He found his people. He found his people. How did he find them? Empty and wasted. They were empty and wasted. The desert speaks of dryness. The howling wilderness speaks of nothingness. And God pulled this people out when they had nothing to give Him. When they had nothing for Him. Empty, wasted. And that's often where God finds us. At the bottom of the barrel. The end of our rope. The howling waste of a wilderness. God loves to discover and find people there. How many of you are wandering in the wilderness this morning? How many feel unloved or uncared for or unimportant or insignificant? You know what's wonderful about that? It's precisely that place that the Lord finds His people. You may feel forgotten by everybody else in the world. You are not forgotten by God because He searches out the howling places in the wilderness. Those empty waste places. He searches out to find His people. Matthew chapter 9 verse 11. The Pharisees were talking to Jesus and they said, "Why is, or to His disciples, and they said, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus heard it. And Jesus responded, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician. <clears throat> But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And it said, and I like this quote, The true measure of the value of any object is based on what someone is willing to pay for that object. You want to know how valuable something it is? Ask what the cost is. You want to understand how valuable you are to the Lord? Look at what He paid. Look at the price. 
Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the howling wasteland, when we were lost and empty and had nothing to give the Father, that's when He died for us. That's when He chose us. He paid the greatest price. So in your moments of howling wasteland insignificance, please hear this. You are worth the life of Jesus to the Father. In those moments when you feel like your worth is nothing, consider the worth of Jesus. And that's what God was willing to pay for you. He found His people. Number two, if you're taking notes, He surrounded His people. Look at verse 10, continuing on. It says that not only did He find Him in a desert land, but He encircled Him. He surrounded Him. He's got you surrounded. I love that. You cannot turn any direction. You cannot go any place that God doesn't know where you are, that He doesn't have you surrounded and encircled. He doesn't just find people and then forget about them. He draws them in and encompasses them all about. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. The words of which we sang this morning. Let me just read this to you. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and you lay your hand on me. Now, now listen and please hear this. So often in Christianity, people will reject the whole thing because someone or someones at their particular church doesn't seem to notice them. I've heard time and time and time again, people make a comment, no one even knows I'm there. No one pays attention to me. No one has any awareness of whether I walk in the door or not. And I have to say, you're wrong. Because even if not a single human being acknowledges you when you walk in the door... The Lord knows you're here. He has encompassed you behind and before. He has you surrounded. He has laid His hand upon you. Stop basing your faith on other Christians because we are all fallen, we are all sinners, and we all need to know the Lord better. But He is perfect. And that perfect God, whom we love and we serve, has you surrounded. And He has not forgotten about you. Though everybody else in your life seems to be going a different direction, God is right there speaking the word of love to you. And the psalmist says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. I take the wings of the dawn if I dwell on the remotest part of the sea. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. And if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. He has you surrounded. But it gets even better. Not only did He find you, not only has He surrounded you, but He says to Israel, He he cared for him. He cared for him. That word cared for needs a little understanding. It's the Hebrew word bean, 
Not like bean like we would eat, but B-I-Y-N, if you want to transliterate it there. The Hebrew bean, it literally means to give understanding or to instruct. To instruct. And that's what the word is for. God found his people, he surrounded his people, he also grounded his people. This is what's happened through the whole Torah that we've been studying through so far. This entire sermon of Moses was because God wanted to instruct the people on how to live. He finds them, he surrounds them, but then he teaches them. He doesn't leave us wondering, okay, we're surrounded by God, now what do we do? We know exactly what to do. There is no excuse for any man on the face of the earth not to know the will of the Father because he has instructed us. He has grounded us in his word. He grounds his people. Another Charlie Peacock quote from this songwriter's convention. He said, you can't sing or write the songs of the Lord if you are not in his word. Too many try to go after the Lord, try to understand the Lord without ever spending time in His Word. You want to know the Lord? It starts right here. And you need to stay right here. He grounds His people. By the way, that's the point of the whole song, to instruct the people in the Word of God. It's what Moses has been doing through the whole book. It's what the Lord did in giving His law. It's what His Word is doing even this morning, grounding us. Giving us a solid foundation on which we can stand. Instructing us with His perfect truth. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And you don't have to take my word for it, but I implore you to take God's word for it. I implore you, I beg you to study His Word. To always compare and not assume, and I've said this so many times, you're probably getting tired of hearing it, but don't assume because Rick says it, that it's the Word. You test everything that's taught up here against Scripture. And challenge me on it. Occasionally as a pastor, and and, and I don't know if it tickles me or ticks me off, it's one of the two, but occasionally, Word gets back to me. Then someone says, well I don't think what Rick talked about last week was even close. I think he was way off. Talk to me about it. For goodness sake, if I'm way off, shouldn't I know? Don't you want to tell me? If I'm off track, would you help me get back on track? Test and study the Word so that everything taught can be sure to be God's. His Word. Grounded in His Word. He found us when we were wasted, surrounding us with His love, grounding us in the truth of His Word. And it says, He also guarded him as the pupil of His eye. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. In the same way, and this is a powerful picture, that you and I would protect our very eyes. The Lord says, I protect my people. How is the eye protected? When I was in Virginia, the youth ministry there for about three years, and they had these little summer gnats that were incredibly annoying. Went out to Christian camp in the summer. I used to love Christian camp before I went out to Virginia and directed a Christian camp out there. And I hated it out there because there were all these little bugs and everything. And I'll never forget the first day I was out teaching. We had all our kids out on the lawn. It was outside. It was a beautiful day. It was kind of humid and the bugs were flying. Little gnats. And what they do is they see the whites of your eyes and they think it's a marshmallow. <laughs> so they go for it. They think it's a little treat. I'm going to get me some of that. And in they fly. So you're always getting eyes. You know, the, the, the gnats coming into your eyes. And I learned something in Virginia at the time. I'm watching the kids and I'm, I'm up there and I'm actually leading some songs and we're singing and I begin to look out and, and the kids, their hands are raised. 
And I'm watching all these kids with their hands raised. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Now, I didn't know these kids. This is right after I first arrived. And, and I'm thinking, this is a spiritual group of kids. They're raising up their hands. They're worshiping the Lord. And, you know, I, I thought that's great. And, and then I found out later they were raising their hands because the bugs will fly to the highest thing, you know, on the body. So if your hand's raised, that's where the gnats are flying. So they were raising their hands to keep the gnats out of their eyes is what they were doing. But the eye is interesting. Scientists tell us that it's the fastest reflex of the human anatomy, the eyelid. Faster than anything else in our entire body, the eyelid, the way it closes it. We're told that the blink of an eye is one one thousandth of a second. The protection. And this is what God's saying. He guarded his people as the eyelid would protect the pupil of the eye, snapping shut to protect against any harm in one one thousandth of a second. By the way, Bible students and Mercy Me fans, there's the phrase, in the blink of an eye, bring something else to mind. It is the twinkling of an eye. It's not the blink. I wanted to point that out to you. It's interesting. People will say, oh, it's in the blink of an eye. And I believe the NIV translates this verse that way. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the NIV, blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. However, it's not the blink of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. Blink and twinkle, two different words. A blink is estimated at one one thousandth of a second. A twinkle (laughs) is estimated at one one trillionth of a second. Which means when Jesus calls, and when we go home, and when we are changed, it will be so fast, fast, you won't even be able to blink and it's over. You will be changed. Awesome. But Moses sings the song that tells us God guards like an eyelid over a pupil, instantaneously protecting the most vulnerable among us. That's the way the God, the God that we serve works. That's how He wants to guard and protect His people. He found us. He surrounds us. He grounds us in the Word. He guards His people. You say, well, Rick, the fourth one, guards, doesn't rhyme with found, surround, and ground. I know, I couldn't find one. Did my best. But it's a beautiful verse, listen, in an awesome song that Moses is singing. Teach them to sing this, God says, they're my inheritance. There's only one problem with the song so far. He encircled, he cared for him, he guarded him, he found him. Doesn't seem to have worked out too well for Israel, does it? They don't seem to be too encircled, protected, surrounded today. And you might even think, you know what, it hasn't worked out too well for me either. I gave my life to Jesus a few years back, maybe recently, maybe long ago. And you may be in a place in your life where you're thinking, it's not really working out that way. I can accept maybe that God found me, that He surrounded me, I don't know, because I'm not sure that I hear from Him that often. Grounded in His Word, I, I, I have no idea sometimes of the right way to go. Of where God would direct me. Guarded? If I'm guarded like the pupil of an eye, then how come I hurt so deeply? Why do I have these difficulties, these struggles in my life? If you feel this way, then you need to hear one more verse. Look at verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Now the people of Israel understood something about the eagle. They knew about the eagle. You might think, well wait, where is the eagle located in the world? I and mean, we have the bald eagle in America and we have some different kinds of eagles. Are there eagles in the Middle East? Absolutely. There's in fact an eagle called the African eagle. 
that the Israelites would have known very well. The African eagle is huge with a wingspan as large as 10 feet. A massive bird. And the Bible refers to the eagle because, again, the Bible always refers to those things which we know. The eagle exists on every single continent on the face of the earth with the exception of Antarctica. The eagle. The eagle, there's some interesting things to understand and know about it. The eagle is the only creature in all of creation that can look directly into the sun without ultimately being blinded. They literally come with little built-in Oakleys. They can look right out. You know, Maui Jims, they've got it going on. And they had UV protection that God gave the eagle so that they can fly high in the sky and fly directly toward the sun and not have damage to their eyes. Fascinating creatures. Amazing birds. They will build, you know, their, their Aries up high on the top of a mountain. In a rocky crag, a high place. And there, where they have their nest, they will hatch their young. Typically, a, a female eagle will have roughly two eggs a year. She'll hatch two eggs. The weaker of the two rarely survives. So on an annual basis, there's usually about one little eaglet that lives in the nest. We'll call him Edgar. Little Edgar eaglet. Okay. Edgar Eaglet lives high up in the nest, is fed for, is fed by and cared for by his mother. And every time little Edgar down there in the nest sees mom come and flapping those great wings, those ten foot wide wings coming toward him, he knows dinner's here, I'm going to be fed, I'm going to be taken care of, this is good, here comes mom. And over a period of four, maybe five weeks, this is the pattern of little Edgar's life. He just gets fed. And he stays in the nest, comfy and cozy and warm and protected, up high in that safe place where no one can get to him and mom brings him the food time in time out but then around week five little Edgar's starting to grow starting to get a little more plump a little stronger little Edgar starts to notice the nest is not as comfortable as it used to be because the nest is constructed in such a way by mama eagle that it has these sharp sticks around the outside all the way around the outside of the nest so that little Edgar when he gets to a certain age suddenly is not comfortable in the nest anymore it hurts ow I'm being poked I'm prodded maybe you feel that way maybe you came to the Lord and everything was just hunky dory and wonderful and you're having a honeymoon period but suddenly it starts to get uncomfortable you start to feel a little more challenged, maybe a little more convicted in your life. The nest was built that way on purpose. The game, it gets even more fascinating. Because the day comes when little Edgar is sitting there in the middle of the nest waiting for dinner. And here comes mom. And, and Edgar sees her coming. And she's flying right to the nest. And he opens his mouth and he's like, I'm going to eat. And suddenly the nest gets flipped on its side. Mama Eagle, what a clutch Edgar must think as he gets knocked out of the nest and begins falling to his death. He's flailing his little wings. He can't fly and he's falling faster and faster and the rocks are coming up toward him. He's headed right for the crags. He's going to die. He's not going to make it when suddenly, whoosh, Mama Eagle swoops down beneath Edgar and catches him on her wings and will lift him up and fl- exactly as the passage teaches us. He spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. He stirred up the nest. That's what the eagle does to teach the young one thing. How to fly. It's flight training. How to fly. And Mama Eagle will do this over and over and over. 
At first, maybe little Edgar just thinks it was a mistake. Klutzy mom just ran into the nest. No, she keeps coming back and stirring up the nest. And out goes Edgar. And down he falls, flailing and, and freaking out. Until finally, finally one day, instead of flailing, he's flying. And that's the whole point. Life, my friends, is flight training. That's why we're here. So we can learn to fly. So we can learn to be raised up. The Lord, I've said this many times, I will say it many times again, the Lord is not concerned, or at least not as concerned, with our present comfort as He is with our eternal condition. How we live and struggle and the pain we feel here is nothing compared to what God is preparing for us, for He wants for us. Don't forget this. I sat there in the songwriter's workshop. One more thing that I heard there. We're listening to these songs. And and again, Charlie Peacock was talking to the group. And and we listened to one song that this other guy had written. And Charlie Peacock said, you know, it's a good song, but I have to say this. It's bad theology. We all kind of went, oh, he just got slammed. It's bad theology. The whole song was about if you give your life to Jesus, everything will be just fine. And it's not true. And I want you to understand and know that just because you've given your life to Christ does not mean everything goes well. It doesn't mean everything's perfect. In fact, in some cases, if you give your life to Jesus, He will ruin you. He'll ruin your life. It'll be a rapturous, wonderful ruin worth rejoicing, but He will ruin you because He wants you to learn how to truly fly best example I've come up with in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. Talk about a guy whose life was wonderfully, rapturously ruined by the Lord. In fact, before Paul became a Christian, Jesus made this comment in Acts 9.15. He said that Paul would be a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Later in Paul's life, in Acts chapter 26, he's talking about his conversion experience. The first time he met the Lord on that road to Damascus. And he makes a comment, he doesn't tell us this anywhere else except in the last telling of his, of his saving. And in that telling he makes this comment, he says, Jesus said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goat in Greek, that's kenteo. And kenteo literally means sharp points or stings or prods. Like little Edgar in the nest who's bumping up against those sharp sticks. And Jesus said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against that, isn't it, Paul? It's hard to remain comfortable in your faith when you know that you know something's not right. And so Paul got flung out of the nest. And he describes his ministry with words like this. 2 Corinthians 6.4 He describes his ministry as afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, and hunger. (laughs) Sign me up. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 11.23 to say that he was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times, he said, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with robs. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Everywhere he turns. It's interesting he says false brethren. Even in the church. Paul ran into dangers of those who would not teach the truth. 
Paul says, I've been in labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of me, or on me, of concern for all the churches. And I think that, that verse is impressive to me. Because I've learned over three years at the bridge, I have the daily pressure of concern for this fellowship. I've never known that before. And there are days that, to be honest, it weighs heavily where this fellowship is going, how individual people are doing, how we're growing in the Lord. Are we doing what the Lord has called us to do? And Paul says, I don't have the weight of one fellowship. I have the weight of all the churches on my back. He goes on to say, who is weak without my being weak? You think you're weak? (laughs) Check me out. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Gang, he was kicked out of the nest, flailing, falling. His whole life seeming to be ruined, but listen to what Paul says, Philippians 2.17. He says, but even, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. Your joy, Paul? Your life is a mess. You're falling. You're flailing. It seems to be out of control. So many times, it seems like Paul actually hit rock bottom. Paul says, no. No, I rejoice. I rejoice through all the suffering and pain and beating and trial and hardship. And I would venture to guess there's not a one of us who has had hardship like the Apostle Paul had. And yet he could say, I share my joy with you all. Maybe today you feel like you're in a free fall. And maybe you fear you're going to hit rock bottom. Let me tell you something about hitting rock bottom. There's no human being that's hit rock bottom. None of us sitting here have hit rock bottom. It's dramatic to say so. Even a bit glamorous, man, I, I just hit rock bottom. No, you haven't. If you're drawing breath, you have not hit rock bottom. Let me define rock bottom for you. Rock bottom is when you die in an unrepentant state. That's rock bottom. Until then, Father Eagle can still swoop down and catch and lift you back up on His great wings and save you and protect you and grow you and teach you how to fly. You might say, well, great, is there anything I can do to embrace my flight training? Can I move this process along a little faster? Can I take hold of something myself, or do I just have to wait and flail? How can I grow? Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And the idea of waiting gang is not passive, it's active. The Hebrew word for wait is kavah, which means to eagerly look for. Those who eagerly look for the Lord will gain new strength. If you eagerly look for the Lord, you will raise up with wings like eagles. Like the eagle, by the way, who can look directly into the sun. So we are called to look directly at the Son, the Son of God, to fix our eyes on Jesus. The Lord who found you, who surrounds you, who wants to ground you in His Word, and He will guard you, but He wants your gaze. He wants your focus to be 100% completely on Him. By the way, verse 12 of Deuteronomy 32 tells us that the Lord alone guided Him, and there was no foreign God with Him. 
No foreign God. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You wait on the Lord and you will mount up with wings as eagles. And by the way, one last note about Israel. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, we're told that Israel, at the end of all things, in the, in the midst of the tribulation, when things couldn't possibly be worse, just as they're about to hit the rocks, it tells us that they are given the two wings of an eagle to bear them up and take them to a safe place of protection in the wilderness. No foreign God. No strange entities. Just the Lord. Gang, He's teaching us to fly. And if it's hurting, if it's uncomfortable, if it's difficult, you just need to know you're being taught how to fly. And we're going to need to know how to fly because one day soon we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us, And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Father, give us eagles' wings. Strengthen our ability to fly. Give us a strength, Father, that is beyond ourselves, an ability to pursue you and live our lives for you. God, the nest can get uncomfortable. The falling is even worse. But Lord, as we draw breath, we pray that you will catch us and instruct us that we might fly with the name of Jesus on our lips looking directly to the Son who saves us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the song of Moses. And we pray that we might be blessed through it and by it. And encourage us this morning, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name.